Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is November 14, 2021, and I'm your host, James Myers. It is a pleasure to be joined in dialogue with participants from the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy meetup groups. Whether you have been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with Plato's works or are new to them, all are encouraged to add your voice to our dialogue. I'll begin by introducing one of the key themes from today's reading selection, which covers parts of books five and six of the Republic in passages from Stephanus reference 470a to 502d. Then I will invite participants to exchange their thoughts on the text, and as they do so, I will briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread of ideas. I suggested three themes to focus our discussion today, which are posted on the shared drive that is linked to the meetup.com event notice. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, I would ask that you relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text that we are discussing. To contribute your thoughts, I would ask participants to use the raise hands feature in Zoom. Calling your name as it appears in your screen profile or your first name only, I will invite you to speak in the order that hands are raised. And I'll give precedence to those who haven't spoken before. After we finish recording in two hours, I invite any participants who wish to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So two weeks ago, we continued to examine the Republic with parts of books three and four, in which the guardian class was to be instilled with a useful falsehood, which is now often termed as the noble lie, to ensure their loyalty and to secure the cohesion and safety of the luxurious city that Socrates called fevered. This proceeded to a discussion of how the four virtues would be identified in the city, and then to an examination of the soul. Socrates divided the soul into three parts, consisting of the appetites and the spirit, which are both mediated by reason. It is in the soul, Socrates asserts, that justice is to be found in the harmony of its parts, driven by an alliance of the spirit and reason, and analogies were drawn between the soul and the city. So today, we will consider the nature of the soul of a philosopher as that which seeks eternal truths from among the sensory images of the constantly changing physical world surrounding it. It is the philosophers who should rule, Socrates says. Unlike the guardians who are motivated by the noble lie, the philosopher hates falsehood. Unlike the guardians or the prisoner in the allegory of the cave, the soul of a true philosopher will operate with a clear model of the origin of things in order to distinguish between opinion and knowledge. Such distinction, Socrates says, is obtained when the soul apprehends the difference between that which always is and never becomes, and that which always becomes but never is. The former is understood solely through reason, while the latter is perceived without reason by the five senses. Here we may make reference to Timaeus 28a, with which we began our first season, we can also consider the single, timeless form of a thing as distinct from the many varied images of the thing over time. Toward the end of today's episode, we will have a chance to begin exploring the education of a philosopher, difficult as that is when performed by imperfect humans. We will continue in two weeks to discuss the subject of education and the knowledge of the philosopher, when we will cover passages 521a to 541a, which will bring us to the end of Book 7. So let's begin today's dialogue with a short reading of Socrates' case for philosopher rulers at 473d to 474a, and then consider exactly what a philosopher is. 
And let me just share my screen here. And uh, JK has graciously offered to uh, to read this little bit here. Everybody can see the screen. And it's just this this part from Socrates, JK, if you wouldn't mind reading that, uh, just that one paragraph. All right. Until philosophers rule as kings or those who are now called kings and leading men genuinely and adequately philosophize. That is, until political power and philosophy entirely coincide, while the many natures who at present pursue either one exclusively or forcibly prevented from doing so, cities will have no rest from evils, Glaucon, nor I think will the human race. And until this happens, the constitution we've been describing in theory will never be born to the fullest extent possible or see the light of the sun. It's because I saw how very paradoxical this statement would be that I hesitated to make it for so long. For it's hard to face up to the fact that there can be no happiness, either public or private, in any other city. Well, thank you for that. And and so that was Socrates speaking. And then Glaucon follows by saying, Socrates, after hurling a speech and statement like that at us, you must expect that a great many people, and not undistinguished ones either, will cast off their cloaks and, stripped for action, snatch any available weapon and make de a determined rush at you, ready to do terrible things. So unless you can hold them off by argument and escape, you really will pay the penalty of general derision. And I just put a little footnote on this that uh, maybe this is a little bit of foreshadowing of what actually winds up happening to Socrates is that uh, he, is, he is put to death uh, for the practice of philosophy. Um, so I wanted to just, you know, maybe just start with this, uh, this one paragraph that JK read uh, where Socrates is saying that philosophers should rule. And, you know, just bringing back into the discussion what we talked about before in terms of the guardians, you know, when we talked um, in our last episode about the idea that the guardians would be fed this, this uh, useful falsehood is what Socrates called it. Socrates, was, was, he said he was rather embarrassed to even bring that up. Um, but this idea that the, the guardians would be told that they were born of the earth and full of metals, gold, silver, and bronze, um, and uh, that they possess a special quality and that their purpose was to uh, guard the city and be faithful to the city and prevent the city from engaging both in civil war or suffering, um, suffering uh, defeat by external forces. Uh, and I'm just wondering, you know, is this paragraph that JK just read, are these rulers that Socrates is proposing, are these different from those guardians who are fed that noble lie that we, we read about last week? Is this a different class of, of people that Socrates is now saying should rule, not, not the guardians, but, but the philosophers? Do we see the, the contrast in that? And if we do, then who are the philosophers that Socrates is referring to? If they're not the guardians who are operating according to this noble why? Any thoughts on that? Are they the, um, the ones who are uh, concerned with truth? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think what you what you said, J.K. is is this idea that the philosopher is somebody who looks for the truth. Um, and then I guess there, in, in this reading that we have, there is this idea of of trying to understand what the truth is. You know, because we see all of these things changing before us. And do we believe that they're true or not true, or, or you know, how do we how do we distinguish that, and how do we distinguish distinguish who should be the ruler? Jose, your thoughts? Uh, <clears throat> at one point, uh, uh, Plato divides the the guardians in, in two, like rulers and auxiliaries, mm-hmm. and he said that. Uh, at about 20 years old, kind of, they, he will divide where, where the auxiliaries are the, the warriors, the soldiers, and the rulers that I believe they are the philosophers. So thank you. And, and uh, so then if the guardians and the auxiliaries who were kind of, I think we kind of had this idea maybe last time that the auxiliaries were kind of the guardians in training, the auxiliaries were the younger ones and the guardians were the older ones who had kind of attained that full, you know, property of guardianship. Um, so the question is, is the idea, you know, if JK says that the philosopher is the one who seeks the truth, are the guardians, if they're being fed this lie or this falsehood of their birth, are, are these the same people that Socrates is now talking about? JK, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, they can't, they can't be the same people. Uh, because the guardians are only um, <clears throat> told the, uh, what is true, but not concerned about whether it is really true or not. The philosophers are um, concerned with knowing what is, as opposed to what is not, or or uh, use the word nescience, as opposed to science. And philosophers are concerned with science, with what is, like beauty. Uh, uh, as opposed to uh, the multiplicity of beautiful things in the world, their philosopher is supposed to be concerned with uh, what is the beautiful, not just what, um, you know, uh, manifested as the be- beautiful. Yeah, and, and I think that's an important point that uh, certainly in that section that I've highlighted, which we could read shortly from 476a to d, this idea of distinction, the distinction between something itself, like the beautiful itself, and the many beautiful things. Uh, and I wanted to get into that. Like, what is that distinction that, that Socrates is drawing here? Bill, what are your, uh, what are your ideas? Yeah. The, uh, the guardians, uh, with respect to, the, to that class, they're really fed propaganda. They're fed a line to, and they're, they're expected to repeat it, and, and it becomes embedded in their minds. And it becomes solid, and and difficult to uh, to move them. So they're they're very much different than the philosophers in the sense that the philosophers can see see the truth and change change their perspective based on new knowledge. Whereas the uh, the guardians are pretty well cast in stone. Cast in stone. That's an interesting way of uh, of putting it. Um, we didn't get to the we we didn't have a chance to cover the reading of how the guardians would be educated, which kind of ends up around three ninety nine e I think. Um, 
And in that whole section, though, in, in talking about how the guardians would be educated, they talk about how they would have to get rid of poetry, for example. They would have to, um, you know, get rid of any sort of art that leads people to think other than ways in which you wanted to, them to think. And so, as you said, it, it was sort of this idea of the guardians being cast in stone, whereas the philosopher maybe has more range to, you know, operate under his or her own uh, capacity to to look at things as they are and not as they seem. So thank you for that. Uh, Nari, welcome. And um, what's your take on this? Uh, yeah, thank you for um, mentioning about the education of the guardians, because uh, since they're, you know, they're gold, silver, and bronze in in differentiating the guardians, uh, yeah, there, there would be some differences in, in terms of their thinking and uh, how they manage. And maybe maybe the gold might be somewhat, some similarity to philosopher in a way that it would, you know, distinguish them from the bronze, for example. So uh, I'm curious how they were educated. Thank you. Mm. Thanks. And yeah, we may have a chance to go and consider those sections where they talk about the education of the guardians. And I think it's very different from the education of the philosophers, which we'll look at in two weeks. So in two weeks, we'll look at what Socrates says the philosopher should be educated with in order that the philosopher can understand the truth. Um, whereas I think the education of the guardian is not necessarily that the guardian should understand the truth, but that the guardian would be faithful to the city above all else. That, that's kind of the, the, the thing with the guardian, because the fear was if the guardians were not faithful to the city, these are the powerful warriors who, if they lost faith in the city, they would actually destroy the city. You know, they would cause this kind of civil war situation to happen in the city. Jose, your thoughts? Uh, I, I still think that the rulers are the philosophers. There is a the, the guardians comprise rulers and auxiliaries. The auxiliaries are the warriors, and they are they are separated after the, the initial education is the same for both until they are like twenty years old, and after that, I, I think the, the well the, the guardians they continue the education for a long time and they become philosophers. The, the rulers. This is what I think, and the. <clears throat> and the auxiliaries, they are the warriors. Right. Okay. Well, and, and that's, so, I mean, I guess there's nothing that would prevent the guardians from becoming philosophers, but I'm wondering in that, we should maybe get to that point where we review the, where we compare the education of the guardians to the education of the philosophers, because I'm, I'm, I don't see anywhere in that section that they talk about the education of the guardians, a uh, point where they would tell the guardians, you know, the story that we told you about your birth from the earth and your possessing of these metals, that story that we told you is a lie or a falsehood. Uh, I don't see that ever happening to the guardians, whereas with the philosopher, they wouldn't do that. Uh, so maybe that's, a, no. maybe that's a difference, but maybe I'm just missing something there. No, the, the, the thing is that uh, sometimes in the text, I think, um, he refers to guardians. Like he's a sloppy to rulers or guardians. Sometimes he refers the guardians to both classes. Sometimes he refers the guardians only to the auxiliaries. Yeah. But I, I think at the end, at the end, the ones that uh, 
that uh, they they propagate this lie and everything is are the rulers. Mm-hmm. So the rulers are the philosophers. This is this is what I think, but uh, okay. I, we will see. <laughs> okay. Well, no, thanks for raising that. I mean, certainly, you know, let, let's discuss that and see if if there are things that point us in that direction. Um, and, uh, and you know, certainly you're right to draw the distinction between the auxiliaries and the guardians. You know, the auxiliaries are, you know, more as the, as the warriors, as you've described, whereas the guardians are, you know, meant to be the the older of the wiser types, I think is, is the way that they were set up. So definitely something that we should consider. JK, your take on that? Yeah, that's a kind of, um, as Bill pointed out, the uh, use of the word propaganda, it's a kind of a contradiction to, uh, to um, you know, as a philosopher to be concerned with truth and then at the same time uh, promote this propaganda, right? So they're, they're saying two things at once. They're concerned with the truth, and then they're also they also want to uh, depend on the lie in order to maintain the structure uh, of a uh, society. So uh, there's a little bit of contradiction there. Uh, you know, how can you be a philosopher and at the same time be a uh, promoter of, uh, of propaganda lies, which are untruths, right? So. There's a bit of a contradiction there. Um, you can't have it both ways, you know, or or if you can, you know, then <laughs> and if you can recognize that, then you you would uh, you would be a true philosopher, and uh, you wouldn't you uh, you know you would do um, have a different idea of what the what the state is and and ideas about uh, who should uh, you know who who should rule and. And so forth. It's kind of like uh, it's pretty, uh, you say, anti-democratic. I mean, you know, that's the thing about, uh, I mean, uh, a political system. There's going to be contradictions that, um, you know, that that that, um, you know, um, being a philosopher, you you have to deal with those contradictions. And. In- Dealing with the contradictions, I guess, looking for the truth as well. I guess in in that, um, Jane, what are your what are your thoughts? Are the is the philosopher different from the guardian? Is there similarities between the two? Can the guardians become philosophers? Hi, everybody. Uh, to I guess I kind of have more of a, a general commentary that's going to be based on the uh, footnotes that are provided in the translation that I'm reading, um, and. Basically, I think I more or less agree with the interpretation that's being offered in the footnotes. So basically, the guardian class is subdivided into two into two groups, which is the guardian proper or ruler class and the auxiliaries, which can also be called military or police. Um, so basically, as I understand, the philosophers can be attributed to the ruler or guardian proper of the uh, general guardian category. Um, Regarding the the so-called noble lie, um, in the footnotes to the translation, it says that a more correct word combination would be magnificent myth. And the author uh, sort of makes a parallel that it's not exactly a lie, but more of a 
uh, well, to the understanding of the modern man, it would be more of a national idea or a national tradition type of thing, rather than a way of manipulating people into believing a made up story. That's, that's all I wanted to add. Thank you. Well, thank you. And the idea of the, the myth, um, and maybe, you know, just would ask people what you think about this idea that, uh, uh, that in, in the founding of a society, do we need a myth to, to bind us together? Is, is that necessary in the founding of a society? Um, Jose, what do you think? Yes, one, one comment that I read is that uh, this, uh, yes, I agree with the word myth more than lie. And uh, this myth, uh, you know, noble lie, is, uh, is, is kind, of a, kind of a religion and, uh, and, and, and uh, like uh, the birth of a kind of the nation sentiment that uh, everybody is born from this earth, so you have to love this earth. And um, yeah, it's kind of a religion. Yes, to un unite people and um, and have a, a common, uh, like uh, the the common origin of people and how they are. They are born to certain roles. Yeah, this is it's, it's very similar to a religion. Like I find interesting. Yeah. Um... And I guess, you know, maybe the question then, you know, and I can, I can see the usefulness, I guess, of such myths, but then the question is who is empowered to uh, propagate that myth? You know, who, who, is, who is wise enough to establish a myth that is going to be that powerful? Um, Bill, your thoughts? Well, I was thinking, you know, the myth has a, a long, long history and we have it today even how we think about our own country, Canada. You know, there's a myth that we're, we are um, a just society, that everyone is looked after, no one's left behind. But if we look at, if we look at the details, we look at the, at the indigenous, how Canadians have treated indigenous and minorities in the past, and even currently, you know, that myth doesn't hold up. So, <clears throat> so you know, it's, Sometimes, yeah, I, I can see the, the the necessity for the myth. It's it's kind of inspirational. It's something to work towards. Maybe not. It's not the fact, but it's maybe something to work towards. But uh, one has to be careful with the propagation of it because it leads us in the wrong direction or blindfolded in many ways. Interesting. This idea that the myth is kind of the the goal that we set for ourselves, but uh, it doesn't necessarily um, express itself in our in our actual practice of things. And maybe that's the you know there's this whole section that that after the section that we're um, reading next time about imperfect societies, and you know whether it's uh, in any type of organization, social organization that Socrates touches upon. There are all these problems in it. And so regardless, I guess, of the myths that are propagated, uh, there will still be problems, as you've, uh, as you've said. Um, Jane, you're thinking? I just wanted to make a small comment about the word myth. Uh, I, I guess a lot uh, what, what we mean by that word and how we define it, 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 really, it really can be done in many different ways. 
for example, in modern in modern culturology, the word myth has a very broad definition nowadays. So a myth is basically, and I think this is based on uh, the ancient Greek meaning of the word myth, which just basically means story. Um, and there is this popular, well, not popular, but it's becoming quite popular, this, this view that we basically still live in the myth-ridden world. It's just we think that our myths are a sort of truth. So, for example, a popular author that talks a lot about this is Yuval Noah Harari, I believe his name is. He wrote a book called Sapiens and then Hamodeus, and he's he's really into the word myth and all of that. So, basically, such words as, for example, humanism or, like, liberal values, they're all myths. They're all, they, they just exist in intersubjective human relations. So beyond that, we can't find those values or anything like that in nature. We can't prove them empirically, scientifically. And so therefore they are a sort of myth that humans use. And even such things as companies, banks, or countries, they're also, they can be viewed as a sort of mythical thing or creation because again, they don't exist. They were created in the minds of humans and therefore they're a type of story that exists again, only in the consciousness and in the interactions of human beings. Interesting, and your mention of uh, Yuval Noah Hariri brought to mind, um, you know, I, I just, I'm in the process of reading actually Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces and uh, it brings to mind this these kind of consistent themes in uh, in literature over millennia uh, about kind of you know consistent behaviors of uh, or behavior patterns uh, of people and these these myths or stories that propagate literature from all across the world uh, for millennia and it, it just it, what you said brought that to mind and so you know maybe there is naturally in our human existence, um, this kind of uh, either need or or just natural kind of presence of some sort of motivating story. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering what people think about that. Is this, is this natural or is this, uh, is this something that is imposed on us? Um, I just wanted to go, I, I see Sam with his hand up and uh, we'll, we'll go maybe Sam first and then JK. Yeah, quickly, uh, a real philosopher, <laughs> somebody I know, Galen Strawson reviewed uh, that, uh, you know, magnum opus of uh, Yuval Harari in The Guardian and I'll add a link to it. And uh, yeah, I mean, his opinion was basically uh, the stuff that's new is not good and the stuff that's good is not new. Uh, so really, uh, the, you know, uh, proof of the pudding uh, proverbial uh, in this type of cases, yeah, what type of lasting value are those like the or uh, myths of a society that are being invoked? And, uh, you know, Plato, I'm sorry, Homer has like a 2800 year head start on some of these pop science authors of more recent vintage. And uh, yeah, sadly, I fear uh, vast majority of them will be kind of, uh, you know, obsolete in 10 years, if not less. Mm. Thanks for that, Sam. And uh, you mentioned what kind of lasting value, I guess, would these myths have, and that's maybe a, a point that we should consider is the the how things work themselves out over time. Uh, certainly, in in terms of um, in terms of the education of the philosopher, um, 
and I think we might get to this point towards the end of today's session, but when Plato talks about the education of the philosopher, he says that the philosopher has a very finely tuned soul, but one is one that's so finely tuned that it's it's susceptible to corruption if it's not dealt with correctly. And he says that you know when when you educate somebody in one particular way, over time that education can wear off and common uh, common habits can be assumed and and uh, you know knowledge forgotten. Um, and so maybe that's uh, something that we should consider too in the the lasting value of these myths and or, or whether value can last in these myths. JK. Yeah, it's funny what the, the myth, uh, uh, I wonder if it fits into what um, he was saying in, in parts of this uh, reading about, um, you know, what is and, and does not change. And, um, you know, it seems like things like myths, beliefs, uh, systems, uh, paradigms are things that, um, that are, are taken to be true and that endure and do not change. And that's what keeps us together, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's uh, that's what he's uh, uh, what Plato is talking about the dividing line between things that change and things that do not change, and myths would fall into that, you know, as well as uh, other uh, kinds of um, <clears throat> patriotic or religious beliefs and and uh, and uh, kinds of propaganda, perhaps that's spread. Uh, that people uh, subscribe to and uh, and that um, believe to be true, right? And they don't change. Well, and, and thank you for raising that idea of things that don't change versus things that do change. And maybe this can lead us into 476A to D. Um, and I've got this posted in the notes as one thing that we could maybe read. I don't know if somebody would want to read either Socrates or Glaucon in this section here on the left side of the screen. Uh, it's a relatively short, short section again, but you mentioned, JK, the divided line and this, uh, this idea in the divided line. So we started our discussion on the Republic, um, what was it, almost two months ago, I guess, uh, with the allegory of the cave, the divided line, the nature of the good, and the simile of the sun. And the divided line, I've got a, I've got a just kind of a summary of it, or, or, or the, uh, an excerpt from the relevant section of that part that we started our discussion on the Republic with, and this idea that um, there are images of things that we see, but they're only images of eternal things. And so the divided line, Socrates said in that section that we we read when we started the Republic. Uh, in one side of the divided line, you would put the images of the things that we see. In the other section of the divided line, you would put the originals or the sources of those images. And then you do this comparison process um, to see if what you're seeing before you actually agrees to what you think are the timeless nature of those things. And that was the that was the basically a, a summary of the discussion of the divided line here. Um, so there is, and maybe this is just a, a, a Talk just briefly here about Timaeus 28a. In Timaeus 28a, I've got a little summary of it here on the cover page. Uh, and that's where, and again, that's where we started our whole series um, in the first season uh, with Timaeus. And in 28a to b of Timaeus, uh, Socrates says, As I see it then, we must begin by making the following distinction. 
What is that which always is and has no becoming? And what is that which becomes but never is? The former is grasped by understanding, which involves a reasoned account. It is unchanging. The latter is grasped by opinion, which involves unreasoning sense perception. It comes to be and passes away, but never really is. Uh, and I think this is a very important thing in Plato that maybe, you know, needs to be appreciated if we're looking at the rest of his works is this idea between the, the unchanging, as you said, JK, and the changing. So, you know, I think of it in the, in the, in the context of physics, for example, where everything is always changing. So, you know, a physical object uh, has no timeless existence. A physical object is in a particular order, you know, it, it's molecules and atoms and quarks and everything down to the basic very level of its structure is in a particular order. Um, and then over time, everything physical tends to entropy, which is the state of maximum disorder. Uh, so any, anything physical is always changing. And, you know, just even if you think of something that's very old, like a mountain, for example, mountains erode over time, you know, eventually a mountain will become dust. Um, so, you know, that's kind of maybe this distinction that Socrates is making between the physical, which is always changing. And that's what you see before your eyes and you, you perceive with your five senses is this changing world outside of you. But, but inside, somehow you've got to make sense of this kind of eternal existence. Like, you know, if, if you see this mountain before you and it's slowly eroding, you can't see the erosion, but you know it will erode over time. Um, you know, what is the basic form of that mountain? What, what, is the, what is the original from which that mountain was created? Um, you know, and this is this kind of idea of the changing so anytime you look around you, you're, you're seeing things that are in the process of change or a process of, uh, Plato calls it the process of coming to be, right? So in, in Timaeus, you know, the, the present is the state of coming to be. The past and the future, he says in Timaeus, and I've got a footnote on, on that. Uh, it's uh, Timaeus 37D, uh, um, 37C to D, I think. Uh, where he says uh, the past and the future have come to be, but the present, which kind of is in the middle of the past and the future, is in a state of coming to be. And that state of coming to be is a changing state. Uh, it, it, if, if the present were not capable of change, then it would be part of the past, right? <clears throat> so it, it's kind of this distinction in time. So maybe, maybe it's this idea of looking for something that's timeless, Jose, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that the well, the only thing that changes are in the physical in the in the physical world. For example, this is my idea. If you have a, an opinion about justice, okay. If you have an opinion about justice, means that you don't know exactly what justice is, and this opinion can change according what you hear, what you re read, etc. And you can change with time. But if you know justice, if you like a, a true philosopher or whatever, you know the, the form of justice, it will never change. This is your, your knowledge of the thing. So this is uh, this, this is one one um, something in the not in the physical world, this is just about ideas and knowledge. Well, and you know, you you 
mention the word opinion, and I think that's that's what we can read in 476A to D. You know, this this distinction between opinion and knowledge. And you know, I would I would ask, you know, if if someone thinks that they know justice, who is to say that they're right? Uh, because I think there's so many interpretations of justice, and there's so many d- interpretations of justice over time. You know that. Uh, what may have been considered just a uh, hundred years ago, you know, I think I think Bill mentioned earlier that the treatment of Indigenous people in Canada, you know, that that what happened a hundred years ago, maybe people thought that that was just, and now we're coming to this different conception of well, maybe it wasn't just, and maybe our maybe our thoughts on justice are changing over time. Um, but then that leads to the question of is there a timeless form of justice that Regardless of whether it's a thousand years ago or today or a hundred years ago, is there something that is always just? Well, according to Plato, this is the form of justice. Mm-hmm. It's, it's eternal and unchangeable, and this is the real truth. Mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever it change, is not mm-hmm. his opinion. It's just this is according to Plato. So now mm-hmm. we can say that this is there are these. Uh, a theory of relativists or like a, they, they think that justice is according to to whatever like uh is is the if it isn't for me and for you there is no real truth in justice but plato plato assumes that there is a a, a truth and we have to look for that yeah and, it, and certainly so plato has this idea of the form which is kind of the timeless uh existence of something um and you know, maybe I wanted to introduce the idea, maybe that the form is the eternal continuity of something, um, and, and because it's a continuity, it never changes. Whereas the discontinuity of something is the changing nature of something. So you know, in this reading that I've got here on the screen, there's this idea of beauty. You know, and so there are many beautiful things, but what I think is a beautiful thing, you might not think is a beautiful thing. So those are kind of these these discontinuities of beauty, you know, for some it's, it's beauty. So for some, it's not. Whereas, you know, the idea of the form of beauty should be something that is eternally and unchangingly beautiful. Um, and so I wanted to introduce that idea of, of maybe Plato's forms as being the distinction between the continuity of a thing and the discontinuity of it. And the discontinuity is what you see in the changing world before your eyes uh, whereas the eternal continuity of something is something that you can only perceive in the mind with a reasoned account. And that is, uh, that's going back to time S 28 a, which is the distinction between that, which always is and never becomes. And that's what you, where you can have the eternal continuity of something versus that, which is always becoming, but never is. And you can have no continuity there. It's just a discontinuity in that in that uh, sense, but I, I wanted to introduce that idea and just see if anybody you know sees any sense in that, or uh, maybe there's a different take on it. Uh, Bill, your thoughts? I just was thinking about what Tamea said about being and becoming. To me, the present time is 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 constant, eternal, because we're always in a present time. We can only live in the present. We can't live in the in the future or the past. So for me, the constancy is in the present. That's where all consciousness is. So um, 
you know, it's, uh, yeah, that's about all I want yeah. to say. No, and, and, you know, certainly it's uh, the idea that the, the present is always there. I mean, it's fortunate for us that it is because otherwise we would have no ability to, you know, have any agency or make any changes. Um, but I, I would I would think of, you know, I was thinking about the nature of time recently for something I was writing. And, uh, you know, once once the present is completed, once the action has been taken, then there's no more present. It becomes part of the past. You add it to the past and then you go on to another moment of the present. And so, as you said, you know, the, the moment of the present continues eternally. It never stops. But once something is complete, it it is no longer coming to be. It has been. Uh, and then that's when you add it to the past and you go on to another moment of the present. But it's an interesting thought about the nature of time. And I think, I think the, the nature of Plato's ideas of the forms um, are very much related to the nature of time. Nari, what are your thoughts on that? Second. Sorry. Adam, just one second. No, I was just... Uh, Adding to what you just said, uh, James, um, so, so why have that uh, sentence, that which uh, is and never becomes, when we are in a constant change, you know, we can't hold time and the present becomes our future. So why that statement, that which is and never becomes, like, I, I'm still grappling with that one. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you for the question. And I think it's, uh, you know, that which is but never becomes is something that is eternal. It never changes. Uh, and it, it is therefore timeless. So becoming happens in the course of time. So if, if you were to think of, you know, Plato, Socrates speaks a number of times in the section that we're reading today about a model of something. So when you have a model of something, that doesn't change. The model doesn't change. What happens is the way that model uh, expresses itself over time, right? So if there was something such as beauty in itself, not, not beauty in the objects that we see around us, but beauty in itself without reference to objects, then that would be an example of, of something that always is, but never becomes. Whereas, uh, individual objects that you might think are beautiful, I might not, but you might think are beautiful, those are not eternal. So I think that's that distinction between that which always is and never becomes, you know, that would be the beauty itself versus that which always becomes but never is, and that would be the objects that come and go that partake in beauty but are not uh, necessarily always beautiful. And maybe that's kind of the difference over time if that helps to make that distinction. Um, JK? Yeah, it seems like in order to arrive at the, um, the idea of is, you know, eternal, it takes, it takes a leap out of, the, out of the dimension of time that you're in. Mm -hmm. Because you're, if, uh, if you're in time and it's, you're constantly, um, <clears throat> you know, in a process of change, you're never even in the, in the present. You know, you try to think of yourself being in the present, it's already gone. You can't capture what the present is. The present moment is not uh, something static that you can, uh, you know, focus on or say, this is it. 
once you before you even say it, it's, it's already gone. So it, you can't really arrive at that. Uh, I mean, it takes a it takes it takes a leap of uh, what faith or something or or um, or blind faith in order to say that there is this eternal is. Interesting idea that that idea of escaping time. You know, I uh, and and you know use the word faith. Maybe we could use the word belief uh, as well. Uh, in that. Uh, you know, if, 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 do we believe that there is an eternal existence of anything, whether it's justice or beauty or uh, whatever, uh, versus the kind of transitory from moment to moment in the present? You know, I, I, when I think of time, I think of myself holding a rope. And every time I pull on the rope, I'm moving from one moment of the present to another. But it, at either end of the rope is the past and the future. Those two ends are always there. I'm just always pulling myself along that rope. And the rope's always lengthening, uh, you know, and it's it's kind of this, you're, you're just always, you're always in the present moment. But as you said, it's, as soon as you think about it, it's changed. Uh, actually, somebody, it reminds me of what somebody said in one of our episodes uh, last season, that as soon as you think about yourself, you change yourself. Um, and it's, it's kind of this interesting idea, maybe as we're getting closer to understanding quantum mechanics and how the universe works and this problem of the, of the observer, um, principle that we've got in quantum mechanics. That's the fundamental problem is that as soon as you think about something or act upon something, it changes. Um, and so maybe that's, maybe that's one of the problems that, that we need to, to face in, in terms of understanding, you know, the images that we see before us and understanding what's knowledge versus opinion. Jane? I just wanted to add a small comment about um, the sort of dichotomy, I guess, um, that, that you proposed, James, of the uh, discontinuity and the eternal continuity. The way that I perceive the for like the platonic forms, the eternal that which always is, would mean that continuity, the definition itself would be categorized under that which is becoming because continuity, it's it still implies a beginning and an ending so it's it's something that is that we can talk about in terms of in terms of something material for example an object and its constant and its continuity in space or its continuity in time and so something that is eternal like the platonic eternal form it is timeless and it cannot be measured as a material object in space or time as i already said um, when we're talking about the past, present, and future, I also feel that the present would be something that we could call, uh, which we could compare to being that which always is. Because, um, as you mentioned, I really like the um, the compa the comparison to the rope with a like a a start in the past. Oh, oh wait, no. Or oh, yeah, we could say a start in the past and it finishes off in the future. So that is something that is always becoming and the present is that which always is, but I, I'm not sure I haven't been able to give it that much thought. Yeah, I, I would I would maybe reverse it and to say that the present is what's always becoming because that's that's where you wanna be. You wanna be in the, in the part of the rope that's becoming. Uh, you don't wanna be stuck on either of those two limits. Uh, because it's it's your chance during the stage of becoming to actually have an effect on on things, and so 
but I like the way you, you said that the, the continuity is that which cannot be measured, you know. So if you have, if you're able to identify beauty in itself without reference to any images of beauty, um, then beauty itself can't be measured. Um, that would seem logical to me. And, you know, so maybe what we're doing in looking at beautiful objects is we're, we're taking a particular measure of beauty and we're saying that I, I, gauge that to be beautiful, uh, whereas um, uh, the beautiful itself is eternal and that which is eternal can't be measured because there's no, there's no reference points. You, to, to, to measure anything, you need at least two points, right? Uh, and that's where I think we get into some of the math and geometry of Plato, which is, you know, it's in here. In, in fact, there's that, uh, there's that section, um, my little math references on the cover page here, um, at uh, 476a, uh, the what up here? The since the beautiful is the opposite of the ugly, they are two, and since they are two, each is one. And the account, and the same account is true of the just and the unjust, the good and the bad, and all the forms. Each of them is itself one, but because they manifest themselves everywhere in association with actions, bodies, and one another, each of them appears to be many. And I think that's maybe part of the problem that we have in, in understanding these things is making that distinction between the one and the many. And that's where we'll, I think, dive quite deeply when we uh, start talking about Parmenides, uh, which perhaps will be after the holiday break. Um, so, Bill, your thoughts on that? I was thinking about the present, and um, I have a different take on it. It's, uh, to me, the present is uh, is a time when you can just see what is in front of you and not not put any bias on what you're looking at. So you're not thinking about the future. You're not thinking about the past. And it's it's I've you know I've experienced times when when I've been I've been at a at a spot in in nature and just sitting there. Just my mind is clear. And not 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 going back to the to the future or the past. To me, that is being present, and it's a continuous process of being present. That doesn't mean you can't plan for the future, but it means it means you are actually here, seeing what is what is right in front of you. Mm -hmm. As far as beauty is concerned, I think you know, it's it's the old adage that if you're beautiful, you see everything that is beautiful, something of that nature. Not uh, so that if if you if you appreciate things for what they are, not uh, and not not uh, overlaid with other ideas, then then you'll see beauty in everything. So it's not maybe not the object themselves. It's 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 your thinking, your attitude. Interesting, uh, interesting use of images there as you as you talked about it you know it made me think what you said about the present is maybe a state of potential uh it's a state where no limits have been established whereas in the past there's a limit and in, in the future there's a limit of things that can happen in the future but in the present there's this unlimited state where it's just pure potential and and each of us as an actor in the present uh, has our ability to express an action that carries with it 
that potential into the future. So it's a, an interesting way of putting it. And certainly the the attitude that you have in the in the present is is important uh, to that. So thank you for that. And uh, we'll go to JB. Welcome, JB. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, this is a response to Bill's comment about the present and how the present just it just is. But isn't the past always with us? I think I'm just the culmination of every event that's happened before this. The past is I'll never be rid of. Excuse me, I'll never be rid of the past, right? Uh, is it? Is it ever really possible to just be in the present? I, I'm, I'm not sure there's any way to escape from the past. I think the past is gives you information. There's no question about it. Gives you information about you know what your actions were and what the response was. So it does help you and formulate uh, formulate you know your actions, but. Um, one cannot, I think one cannot be uh, overpowered by what happened in the past because, you know, it, it can be distorted. The past, your remembrance of the past can be very much distorted. So I remember things, <laughs> my sisters keep telling me, I remember things that actually never happened. And uh, so, um, you know, yeah, one just has to be careful about about treating the past as, as uh, as as a present, as having you know a present uh, um, setting. Well, thanks to both of you. I mean, JB, you raised a very important point. You know, can we ever leave the past behind? And uh, and I think Bill, you raised the important point that the past can be distorted. And I think that is kind of one of the things that in this whole section of the Republic, after what we're looking at today when they talk about imperfect societies that's one of the problems with imperfect society is, is the way that the past has been colored and maybe the problem with the guardians you know this idea of telling them this this you know useful falsehood about the the past and the way they were born of the earth you know that's a distortion of the past um and one of the one of the things that the guard that the philosopher has to have is a good memory and I think that's a way of getting around this distortion of the past. Uh, so it was a very good question, JB. And, and certainly this idea of memory and understanding the sequence of cause and effect over time is very important because if you don't understand that sequence, then you won't understand you know, the, the effects of your actions in the present. Uh, I think that's a very critical point uh, and something that, you know, in, in, you know, a very dystopian sense of view, you know, like Orwell's 1984, for example, the past was forgotten the next day. The, the past, you, you dumped the past into the memory hole and it was gone. Nobody remembered. And maybe, you know, that's, that's I, th I think I might have talked before about this, this idea of compression of temporal bandwidth, you know, this idea that there was a philosopher in the UK who raise this idea that maybe things in the present now with our technology are moving so fast that we forget what happened in the past or we we lose that connection between cause and effect over time and you know so maybe this is a, an issue that that we need to understand you know that this question that JB answered is or raised is it is it possible to forget the past um, well, you know yeah, go ahead the past is fertile growth for, for these myths 
the development. Yeah, yeah, for so, sure. Uh, you know, one has to always examine, examine your, your, your thinking on on that. Sure. Let's let's maybe just go to this reading if we could from from four seventy six A to D, and this is making this distinction between knowledge and opinion, and I think this is important in understanding the flow of time and the flow of cause and effect over time, um, and and you know this this idea that the philosopher needs to be able to distinguish between knowledge and opinion. And I don't know if we could have, I don't know if would, anybody would uh, want to read Socrates or Glaucon uh, in this short piece here. I could read one if, if somebody wants to do the other. I, I can read one of the parts. Okay, Jane, thank you. Well, Jane, do you want to read Socrates and I could read Glaucon? Uh, sure. So I draw this distinction. On one side are those you just now called lovers of sights, lovers of crafts and practical people. On the other side are those we are arguing about and whom one would alone call philosophers. How do you mean? The lovers of sights and sounds like beautiful sounds, colors, shapes, and everything fashioned out of them but their thought is unable to see and embrace the nature of the beautiful itself. Well, that's for sure. In fact, there are few people who would be able to reach the beautiful itself and see it by itself. Isn't that so? Certainly. What about someone who believes in beautiful things, but doesn't believe in the beautiful itself and isn't able to follow anyone, anyone who could lead him to the knowledge of it? Don't you think he is living in a dream rather than a waking state? Isn't this dreaming, whether asleep or awake, to think that a likeness is not a likeness, but rather the thing itself that it is like? I certainly think that someone who does that is dreaming. But someone who, who to take the opposite case, believes in the beautiful itself, can see both it and the things that participate in it, and doesn't believe that the participants are it or that it, it itself is the participants, is he living in a dream or is he awake? He's very much awake. So we'd be right to call his thought knowledge since he knows, but we should call the other person's thought opinion since he opines? Right. Well, thank you for that, Jane. And, and I just wanted to, you know, this, this is kind of to continue this idea that we've got into now, this idea be, between distinguishing, distinguishing the thing in itself versus the thing that participates in those characteristics. Uh, so the, uh, you know, this, this idea that uh, the lovers of sights and sounds like beautiful, uh, or the lovers of sights and sounds like beautiful sounds, colors, shapes, and everything fashioned out of them, but their thought is unable to see and embrace the nature of the beautiful itself. So, you know, if we become, you know, fixated on things that are beautiful and, you know, I, I can, I can tell you things that I thought were beautiful 10 years ago or 20 years ago, I no longer think are beautiful. Some things um, and things that I see as beautiful. Now, I didn't necessarily think that those would have been beautiful, you know, 20 years ago, like philosophy. I was not into philosophy the way that I am now 20 years ago. So to me now, philosophy is beautiful, but back then it was just a task. Um, and, so this question of how do you distinguish between 
the, the particulars that you see are beautiful at any one time versus the eternal form of beauty in which these particulars partake. But the form itself never disappears. The particulars come and go, but the form itself never disappears. And so this idea that, uh, you know, opinion is something that changes. So, so they talk about opinion as being the intermediate between knowledge and ignorance. So when you don't have uh, knowledge of something, but you're not completely ignorant of it, then you can have opinion, which is kind of in this intermediate phase. And I think they use the, the analogy of light versus darkness. You know, if knowledge is light and ignorance is darkness, opinion is somewhere in the middle of the two. Bill, your thoughts? I was thinking what role awareness plays in all this. You know, if we're aware of something, we can we can see its beauty. For example, in your in when you were 20 years younger, <laughs> you may not have even heard of philosophy or not thought about it or, may, or been made aware of it very much. But once you became aware of it, you saw the beauty in it. So so I think awareness has a lot to do with it. We, we open up our eyes to what is in front of us, to the whole world, and see the beauty there, or look for the beauty. Rather than look, because look implies an active role, but just be accessible to it. Just let it filter in. And, um, and you, can, you can see beauty everywhere. An interesting way of putting it, though, the, the idea that you know, awareness is critical to being able to access this timeless realm, you know, for to take, to take ourselves out of the changing realm of the present, but to put ourselves into this timeless realm uh, where we retreat into this state of reason, um, then, then certainly that awareness is, is critical. Uh, and awareness can be maybe obscured by all of those things that present our, themselves before our, our eyes. You know, here I'm actually thinking, you know, you, when you say awareness, actually, it makes me think of the prisoner in the cave and the allegory of the cave. Uh, the prisoner in the cave is aware of the images on the wall, but is not aware of the source of the images. Uh, so, you know, is the prisoner in the cave truly aware of what is going on? And, it, you know, maybe is that the purpose of that allegory in, in the Republic is to, to say that we should not be like the prisoners in the cave, uh, thinking that what we see before us is is timeless and eternal. Um, but we there's a deeper awareness, you know, in this three parts of the soul that we looked at uh, in our last episode. Uh, you know, the, the the depth of the awareness goes into the into the to the reason, which in Timaeus twenty eight a, you know, it said that the the state of of that which always is but never comes to be that you can only apprehend by uh through reason not not through your eyes not through your other four senses but only through reason jk what are your thoughts on that yeah i think uh, he's pointing out the difference between uh aesthetic beauty and um and the uh the, the rational beauty uh, like you said uh, the scientific like uh, the the scientists um, can't appreciate the the flower that's beautiful, but the uh, the artists um, you know uh, appreciate the flower for what it is, uh, the colors and the shapes and so forth. But the scientist understands the inner 
um, you know, origins, the, the, the mechanics and the, and the, um, <clears throat> the, the, the structure, the inner structures of the flower and how it came about. So it's the understanding of um, the, perhaps it's just kind of an abstract rational understanding of, of, um, of, of, uh, of something that's, that's, you know, that's beautiful on, in itself um, at a deeper level, perhaps, you know. And so there's a kind of maybe a bias uh, towards, the, towards the artist there, you know, that's implied that the artist is only concerned with outward beauty, whereas the philosopher is, is more interested in the, the, um, the deeper source of that, of what, what is beautiful, um, the inner workings, the abstract, uh, uh, invisible, um, you know, um, operations behind uh, what is beautiful, whereas the artist is only concerned with the poets only concerned with the uh, with the superficial, um, you know, characteristics of of the West beautiful. Interesting, and you 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 use the the sense of the artist um, and the um, just take that that quote here that I've got on the the cover page from five hundred E, um, and. And when the majority realize that what we are saying about the philosopher is true, will they be harsh with him or mistrust us when we say that the city will never find happiness until its outline is sketched by painters who use the divine model? Um, and so, you know, this, this distinction that you made between the aesthetic and the actual source or cause of something, uh, I think is important to understand, you know, is that uh, the artist is not necessarily looking for that. Uh, the artist is looking for a representation or an image, but is not necessarily looking for the source of something. And maybe that's, you know, in this, in this quote, you know, you, you, you made this you reference to art and, you know, maybe, maybe in trying to set up this constitution, you know, these, you know, Socrates and Adamantus and Glaucon are really trying to maybe putting themselves in the role of artist you know, they're, they're kind of painting a picture of a society. Uh, but then Socrates says, you know, we have to use the divine model. And maybe that's where it gets into this idea of the philosopher is that the philosopher, because the philosopher is trying to get at the truth of something that maybe that is the divine model. And that's maybe where we went to start today's discussion with that reading of, of why the, uh, why the philosopher should be the ruler, uh, because the philosopher would understand the, the source of that divine model. So thank you for that, that connection to artistry. Uh, Jane? Uh, to add a little bit to what was just said about artists and aesthetics, um, I, the way that I perceive it in, in terms of the platonic dialogues is that the artist would play the role, the, the artist would potentially be able to capture a sort of snapshot of what could be perceived as the, one of the platonic forms. But unlike the philosopher, it would be on an intuitive level, which would give reason for Socrates um, arguing against, for example, poetry to be taught as a discipline because uh, it, would, uh, it would train young, um, young future philosophers to think 
perhaps more intuitively and artistically rather than reason with the pure mind. Um, I also wanted to, this is, I, this is a very strange idea for me, but I think there's, there's something interesting to it. Um, somewhere along the dialogues, the, if we take the, for example, form of beauty, beauty and ugliness are two parts of one thing. So to me, it would make sense that the form of beauty would also encompass the second half, which is ugliness. And if we're trying to um, tap in into one of the eternal platonic forms, uh, it would it would seem that it's very easy to take to mistaken beauty and ugliness, if that makes sense. There's also this expression, it's something like there's one step from love to hate, which kind of also plays on the same idea that it's very easy to mistake something beautiful that is actually that actually has the characteristics of a platonic form of ugliness. I don't know how much that makes sense, but it's it's an idea that I've been entertaining that would make sense why a lot of people, especially nowadays with globalization and things changing so much and a lot of the traditions and norms and values um, losing their losing their power on people and a lot of a lot of people are sort of they're this I guess I don't know sort of lost in this new world that's changing so dramatically and that's why we're losing sense of what even aesthetics are and they're changing so much that I don't know it's I'm just going to leave it at that thank mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. and, and thanks for you know again i think raising that point of you know our is is beauty and ugliness are, are those forms tied together um you know or, or are those expressions in the changing world that we see around us that are by contrast and i just you know would again highlight that um part from 476a that i've got here on the screen that uh, that i read that you know, beauty, beauty and ugliness are two, or they're each one. So they express themselves as two, but they start each as one, maybe in that, maybe we can think of it that way. Um, so, you know, the form is the oneness of something, or the continuity, as I was trying to propose of something, whereas the expression of that in its various discontinuities is always with connection to its contrast. You know, so you never see the beauty in itself. You always see the beauty in the contrast to the ugly, uh, or the good in contrast to the bad, or the just in contrast to the unjust. And uh, so maybe that's that's one way of thinking about it: is you always get this contrast in the in the present state, whereas in the eternal state, there is only beauty in itself. And and I wanted to ask that I wanted to ask the question: if if we were to Think of if if I if I were to say what is beauty in itself, how would I perceive that, or how do you perceive that? You know, so maybe we can answer that question too. You know, how do you how do you how would you describe beauty in itself? So thank you for raising that. Uh, we'll go to Bill and then Jose. Well, I was thinking of um, times when yeah. I thought something was um, was ugly, but then over time it developed into something that I thought was beautiful. So I asked myself, how can that be? How can you think of something that is ugly at one time and then the years later think of it as beautiful or the, or the reverse? <coughs> so, 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 you know, it's, 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 it's the ideas that we have 
about what's beauty and what's ugly. I may think ugly, uh, snakes are ugly, but another person may think they're beautiful. So it's the ideas we have. But I think once we get rid of those, those ideas that are full of bias, pre preconceptions, you know, uh, what society tells us is nice, what's good to look at and what's not good to look at, what's good or bad, if we get rid of those, I think we can open our minds and see beauty for what it is in any form. You know, opening the mind is is a term that you use, Bill, and I think that's that's a key. You know, certainly to what Plato says at uh, Timaeus twenty eight A is that to apprehend that which always is and never becomes. In other words, the form of something, the continuity of something that never changes. That's that's only accessible to us through the mind, through a reasoned account. It's not accessible through the senses, uh, and I think that's an important understanding. And that's why I keep bringing Timaeus 28a. I've mentioned Timaeus 28a more than any other section throughout the whole um, throughout the whole series that we've been uh, doing here. And uh, I think it's very important to understand. So, uh, so thank you for that. Uh, we'll go to Jose and then JK and then JB. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Uh, I, I don't have in front of me, but I remember when we read the symposium, what uh, what Plato referred as uh, beauty, something beautiful. It's not only like uh, aesthetic. Uh, I think he said that uh, beauty, I think beauty is kind of the, the form of the good. So the the form that, uh, that is above all other forms. And oh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's anything that is morally good, like a, like a, or, or the form of the good that it, it compiles all the other forms. This is this is mm -hmm. the beauty, the, the, the beauty for for Plato. So sometimes I think this uh, is not only the, this aesthetic uh, concept. Do you remember uh, James in the symposium? Indeed, yeah, and, and it's. I think we can come back to the symposium. Uh, I think uh, again, and I wanted to come back to a few of the other ones that we've done too, the Fido as well, on the soul, and um, and yeah, I mean certainly. So, and thank you for remind, reminding us about the form of the good because that's something that we've encountered. We, we encountered in our first session on the Republic, and and it's worth mentioning again here the definition that Socrates gave to the form of the good, which is. The good is that which gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower. That is the form of the good. And I think that actually, you know, as you say it, that's very beautiful um, because that's, and that's very empowering. Um, you know, the good is that which gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower. Um, so that's, that's an important point that we should really, we should consider here. Um, we'll go to JK and then JB. Uh, this uh, 476A, uh, is he, um, is he uh, implying a kind of a dialectical um, reasoning of opposites? You know, where if you can reconcile the opposites, understand these two opposites, be uh, beautiful and the ugly, the good and the bad and so forth, good and evil, you know, it's a kind of... Um, it's a kind of rationality where you are able to grasp what the whole is. And the whole, you know, um, 
that encompasses the opposites is a, is a kind of a, is a kind of what uh, what I think he means by being right as a form of being. Uh, you know that uh, it goes that is that is uh, beyond becoming. You know, um, but I think the um, perhaps uh, the dialectical uh, process would include you know becoming right. And um, and I guess uh, for him the the form, the idea of the form, you know, is already beyond becoming, and it's so, and it is the uh, understanding of the whole, and that itself is is beautiful. It's uh, it's both ugly and beautiful, uh, and it that um, that is a kind of um, the highest good or the highest uh, form of beauty. Yeah, you, you said that very powerfully, Jake. I, I really like the, you know, your your introduction of dialectic, and I think we can get into that in two weeks' time when we look at the education of the philosopher. Um, but certainly, as you said, you know, the the idea of grasping the whole from the opposite. So you're taking two and you're making them one. Uh, and I think that's again recalling the divided line that we looked at in our first episode on the Republic. You know, this in in our mind making this division between the images that we see, and then comparing them to what we think the eternal origin of these images are, and then once we make that connection, then we've got that maybe dialectical connection, and we can say yes, okay, then those images I believe are true images, uh, whereas I'm going to discard the other images, and that's the you know the prisoner looking at the images on the wall in the cave, you know, isn't able to exercise that dialectic because he hasn't been allowed that awareness of any other images. Uh, so I, I think you, you put that very powerfully and let, let's consider that idea of grasping the whole from understanding the contrast of the opposites. I think it's very important all through Plato's works. Uh, the same and the opposite is something that is that he plays on very much a lot, uh, and and that's when he starts talking about odds and evens, for example. You know, the, the, the little mathematical connection between the same and the different. So, thank you for that. And JB, your thoughts? Well, when I think about the distinction between the beautiful and the ugly, I was tempted to say that the beautiful would be part of the good. I hesitate to say that because if that's the case, then I have to say the ugly is part of the bad, maybe, which is problematic. And it makes me think of a very, uh, it's a very basic example, but I'm a big fan of bad movies and objectively bad movies. The sound design is terrible. The sound production is terrible. The narrative is non-existent. The acting is wooden and stale, but somehow some way it comes together as a whole and it just brings me so much joy and i would say some of the best movies out there objectively lack any kind of technical skills and they're just bad but that bad movie gave me a good feeling and if beauty is part of the good that bad movie is, is it's beautiful really even though it's objectively bad and then that's if that's the case, I, I believe this is what Jane said, that beauty and the ugly are one in the same. It can be one in the same. You made me smile with that uh, reference to bad movies because I immediately thought about the attack of the killer tomatoes, which I saw when I was a teenager. I just, 
and I saw it a few years ago, and again, it just reminded me how bad it was, but how funny it was at the same time. You know, it's just so so. Yeah, and, and you know, Jane raised this idea of you know the are the are the two really composed together. You know, the, this idea of the, the beauty and the ugly and and all sorts of opposites. You know, and I think that's. But that's one thing that we each need to understand. And, and again, you know, if, if we're setting ourselves up in this position of painters, you know, painting this, this model society, you know, are we, are we the ones who are, you know, so possessed of knowledge of good and beautiful and justice and all of these other virtues uh, and good things that we're capable of painting this and then imposing our views on everybody else when, you know, JB, you might like bad movies, other people have no time for them. Well, you know, do we say, well, people in our society are going to be made to watch bad movies and they are going to like them? Um, you know, and that's that's the problem I, that we have, I guess, in in making these models. And I just wanted to, I just wanted to call out one particular uh, part, and it's four seventy two D. You know, where they're talking about again this idea of modeling, and, and this is you know when you're painting something, you're painting from a model. You know, they say then it was in order to have a model that we were trying to discover what justice itself is like and what the completely just man would be like if he came into being and what kind of man he'd be if he did. And likewise, with regard to injustice and the most and the most unjust man, we thought that by looking at how the relationship to happiness and its opposite seemed to us, we'd also be compelled to agree about ourselves as well, that one who was most like them would have a portion of happiness most like theirs. But we weren't trying to discover these things in order to prove that it's possible for them to come into being. So, you know, they, I think that's acknowledgement that what they're trying to do here is to just make a, a model, but they're not, they're, they're saying that we don't think that this model can actually come into being. And that's not our purpose to say that this model should be coming into being. So whether it's, you know, the guardians and feeding them that useful falsehood or whether it's the philosophers ruling or whatever, they're not saying that this is necessarily meant to be a, a real model, but it's just a model so that they can look for the presence of justice in the city. Um, so I wanted to maybe just take us to, um, let me just find this section here. I just wanted to, to take us to 485 D to E again, just this, um, I'll just briefly read this, you know, that uh, Socrates says, do you think then that there's any difference between the blind and those who are really deprived of the knowledge of each thing that is? The latter have no clear model in their souls. And so they cannot, in the matter of painters, in the matter of painters, look at what is most true, make constant reference to it, and study it as exactly as possible. Hence, they cannot establish here on earth conventions about what is fine or just or good when they need to be established or guard and preserve them once they have been established. Then he goes on to say, should we then make these blind people our guardians or rather those who know each thing that is and who are not inferior to the others, either in experience or in any other part of virtue. And then he ends by saying, let's agree that the philosophic natures always love the sort of learning that makes clear to them some feature of the being that always is and does not wander around between coming to be and decaying. Um, and so, you know, I think that kind of emphasizes this, this idea that, um, you, you know, that again, the philosopher needs to grasp, grasp 
this eternal truth. Um, so maybe we can take it from here to um, this idea of who, who will teach. And we'll just go to uh, this section here, 492D to E. Maybe I'll read this as well. So this is Socrates talking about the education uh, of the philosophers. So he says, it's what these educators and sophists impose by their actions if their words fail to persuade. Or don't you know that they punish anyone who isn't persuaded with disenfranchisement, fines, or death? No, indeed, it would be very foolish even to try to oppose them, for there isn't now, hasn't been in the past, nor ever will be in the future, anyone with a character so unusual that he has been educated to virtue in spite of the contrary education he received from the mob. I mean, from a human character. The divine, as the saying goes, is an exception to the rule. You should realize that if anyone is saved and becomes what he ought to be under our present constitutions, he has been saved, you might rightly say, by a divine dispensation. Um, this is maybe a little bit what I raised, I think maybe in our first section, session again on the Republic was the idea that if, if we're to educate anybody to, um, you know, with the power to, to rule this city, how are we going to educate them? Like which, which one among us is so perfect that we can, we can pass along our perfection to the rulers or through time, you know, whatever we teach them, some of that becomes lost. Uh, and, and that loss is actually something that's made, uh, let me see here, I've got it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's when they talk about the, yeah, it's, it's in 491D uh, when Socrates says, we know that the, the more vigorous any seed developing plant or animal is, the more it is deficient in the things that are appropriate for it to have when it is deprived of suitable food, season, or location. And he goes on to say that, won't, won't we say the same thing about souls too, Adamantus, that those with the, very, with the best natures become outstandingly bad when they receive a bad upbringing. And then he goes on to say that, um, you know, when uh, he makes this analogy to rocks, he says, the very rocks and surroundings echo the din of their praise or blame and doublet, and, uh, and then that carries them away in the flood, you know, so that's, that was in 492C. So he's making this analogy to, you know, the, so they planted the seed of philosophy in the philosopher, and they're trying to grow it, and the seed is very strong, and, and you know, it can do it can grow very well if it's watered well and tendered well, tended well. Uh, but, you know, if, if over time that tending or the people doing the tending disappear and other people take over watering that, that kind of plant that's growing, that analogy of the, the, the plant or the philosopher that's growing and, and, you know, the, the humans take it over and human, um, you know, humans looking at images, false images, maybe, and starting to starting to impose their own values on the developing philosopher. He says, then the developing philosopher can become outstandingly bad, you know, violent, vicious. Um, and I just wondered what you think about this idea. Like, if we're setting up a if we're setting up a city, and we're saying we've got the the power and the knowledge to pass along, you know, for 
the future rule of this city. We're, we're making the constitution. We have this power and knowledge to pass on is that even if we are perfect at the start, is perfection going to be maintained over time, you know, in this, in this kind of eternal state or in the state of coming to be where everything's changing, is some of that knowledge going to get diluted? And is some of that knowledge going to turn into opinion and then some of that opinion turn into falsehood? So I just wanted to, you know, kind of raise that idea of how we maintain, even if we establish somebody as a philosopher, how do we maintain that philosopher and who's, who's entitled to educate the philosopher? So we'll start with uh, Jose and then go to Bill. Yeah, when, when, when reading this part of the, that uh, the person that is, uh, it has all the abilities, all the dispositions, everything to be a philosopher, but uh, comes back, it will be really, really bad. I, I, I reading that, I immediately remember one of the dialogues that we read, Alcibiades, and probably he's referring to him because he was a, he was a very, uh, well, they say that even that uh, was one of the factors that uh, they, they, uh, they tried to, to Socrates was because he was uh, Alcibiades. They, they said that uh, he corrupted Alcibiades. Anyway, that's what I. Uh, Alcibiades was, you know, I think uh, was susceptible to the sophists, and certainly uh, Socrates goes at the sophists again in this part of the reading that we're doing today. You know, the sophists are the paid teachers, and they're being paid to teach in a certain way, uh, and they will not teach the eternal truths. They will teach the transitory truths, you know, the, the images of beauty or whatever that they're being paid to teach. Uh, and some of these sophists can be very convincing. Um, you know, in, in 493a through c, for example, Socrates uses this image of the beast. You know, so it's like this, these, these sophists are just feeding the beast, you know, and the beast has this one particular diet that uh, it's used to. And this is all the sophists do. So is the philosopher really going to get proper training if he falls under the, the, the influence of a sophist, for example? Um, so Alcibiades is certainly a, a good example. Um, Bill, what are your thoughts? In terms of your ideas about your thoughts about degrading the knowledge of the, um, of the wise philosopher kings over time, well, that's the risk one takes in having an elite, small group of people who are who are in this role. I think it's much better to have everyone educated in in that way, so that there's always someone who can uphold the the, the wise, who can object to when this, the others go astray. So it's a, it's a matter of checks and balances. So if we keep if we keep knowledge widespread rather than hold it in a small group, then I think we can avoid this problem to some extent. A good point, uh, very good point, because I think, uh, you know, as you say, if, if, it's, if knowledge is only held by a select few um, and it's not made available to others, then uh, the others become like the prisoners in the cave. And there is this, there's a question that was asked at, um, yeah, here it is, it's at 493E. The question is asked, can the majority in any way tolerate or accept the reality of the beautiful itself 
as opposed to the many beautiful things or the reality of each thing itself as opposed to the corresponding many? And that's a good question. I, you know, as you say, I mean, yes, it would be admirable to, admirable to make sure that, um, that knowledge is widespread. But I wonder what we think about that question. Can the majority in any way tolerate or accept the reality of the beautiful itself as opposed to the many beautiful things? Um, I don't know if that's an elitist question or whether it's just simply a matter of human nature. Is it possible to train everybody to that level of perfection or are we always going to need some some level of, of, of ruler? Like Socrates is saying, this is a rare type of person who would possess this interest in the knowledge of the thing in itself and not just in the images of the thing or the likenesses of the thing. JK, your thoughts and then Nari. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, important issue and it's a problem because even in a democratic society, you have, uh, you know, uh, factions of people trying to determine what, uh, you know, what education should be taught what, uh, what the nature of education is. So right now there's this attack on critical race theory, whatever that is, right? That they're, they're, one group is claiming that um, that is being taught even in the elementary schools and, and uh, which is not true. And uh, so there, you know, there are different factions trying to legislate. So it, it's a question about who, uh, who should, uh, you know, who are the real philosophers then, right? Is it the ones on the left or the right or the middle? <laughs> and, uh, but I, it's, it's, a, it's an open question that I'm, I'm trying to grapple with here. Interesting and certainly the, the connection to current trends, you know, as I, I think it was actually yesterday in the New York Times, I was reading uh, an article or an opinion piece, I think about, how some parents are now showing up at school board meetings uh, in the U.S. and demanding that certain books be removed from the library shelves or or even burned. You know, some of the some of the parents actually propose that uh, some of these books be burned. Um, and this, you know, maybe over time happens to knowledge. You know, if if certain people don't like uh, the way something is expressed or they don't want certain pieces of knowledge to get out there they will propose that things be burned. You know, in fact, and again, for this writing, I'm doing some writing and I'm doing some research on, um, on Renaissance Italy. You know, Florence went through this phase where they fell under a very, under the, the spell of a very influential preacher. And, and they had the, what's, you know, what was called the bonfire of the vanities where all of the beautiful objects of art and beautiful literature were to be delivered to a fire in the middle of Florence and burned. Um, and, you know, so is this, is this part just of the, the basic problem in hum, human nature that we've, we've got these, these tendencies to factionalize and to say, well, my knowledge is better than your knowledge. And, you know, is it just a natural thing of human existence that, you know, there will be just a very few people who are capable of transcending that and to finding the absolute truth, or, or at least to, to having an interest in seeking the absolute truth. Nobody can find it. In fact, Socrates says in that part that I just read that it would need a divine dispensation uh, to, to actually be saved. And, and, and in the end, actually, he asks about who will be our saviors. 
you know, does it does it require a savior, or is it something in fact that everybody can be educated widely to do? So interesting, interesting discussion. Marie, your take on that? So uh, in in this uh, Socratic thinking, and uh, going back to the fifth, sixth century, um, you would think they would have they're thinking about progress in their society and what they want. And maybe they're going to, you know, the thinkers, uh, philosophers would bring the different people would probably bring different, um, you know, skills and and knowledge and maybe not dependent on one. Um, Then if you just have like an elite group that's, you know, over time they would, their thinking could deteriorate and you could have others out there who could kind of pick up, um, pick up the, um, where, where they fail to, to manage. So I, I don't know. It's, and I, I think, I think the thinking probably is the same. It hasn't outdated, but we just have different problems now and we're addressing it differently. Uh, but but it's the, the same sort of thing I would uh, imagine that we are trying to um, manage a culture, a society, a, con- a country, and um, but but we're more complex now. So thank you. Certainly, that, that synthesis of ideas over time I think is is key to that kind of healthy state. You know, they. I use that theme in our last episode, this idea of the health in a city versus uh, versus unhealth. And, uh, you know, maybe it's it's in that process of synthesis that a constitution of a of a city could be established with some sort of health. You know, I think it would be that and certainly that respect for those different ideas. And just, you know, again, to you know bring back to the you know, idea of the philosophic nature is that which hates falsehood. You know, Socrates uses that word twice, hate, a uh, very powerful word uh, at 485b, uh, and then also at 490, uh, 490c, um, you know, where he repeats it. You know, he says, um, will such a person have any part in the love of falsehood or will he entirely hate it? Glaucon says, he will hate it. So maybe the maybe the thing is uh, it, it just I'll, I'll throw this out there is the thing then maybe if we can't have um, everybody you know appreciating the, the the nature of something in itself you know the the majority of people will be looking at images and you know will be thinking different things about this is beauty that is ugly. This is just that isn't unjust. You know, we're just we're going to just be destined to have those differences of opinion. Um, that maybe what we can do, if if we can't if we can't get everybody to the truth, maybe we can get everybody to hate falsehood. Uh, maybe that's one way of approaching it, uh, and maybe that's why Socrates says twice that you know the that the philosopher will hate falsehood. And maybe that's where, maybe that's a starting point for, for the general or for the general group or for the majority. I just, you know, wonder what people think about that, you know, and, and how do you, how do you then train people to hate falsehood um, without, you know, without getting them, 
you know, all twisted up in opinion. I guess that that's the problem, you know, because I think that's, that's when some people, uh, some people will say that's false and some people will say that's true. And then there's disagreement again. Jose, your thoughts? Yes. Well, one, one part that we, we skipped it. I, I don't know if we're going to read the, anytime where we will read it in book five at the beginning. No, well, part of book five that, uh, Socrates thinks that, uh, uh, a part of uh, a very important part to to have these uh, the guardians, like uh, the way to be philosophers and etc., is to abolish uh, private property. So he thinks that uh, private property is the thing that corrupts people, and uh, this is a, I think this is a very important aspect that uh, to consider in his things. And, and, and certainly, yeah, I mean, I think we touched upon that in our last episode and, and um, you know, this idea between the, the, the difference between the wealthy and the poor uh, and this idea that, you know, that Socrates thinks that this is a city in fever because it's a city that is focused on material luxuries rather than luxuries of the mind, which would be philosophy. Um, and so, you know, the, the question is, do you impose on the rulers, these rules, like you will take away their private property, you will take away their children, you will take away, you will burn certain poetry that gives false images, you will take away the art, you will do all of these things. At 399e, Socrates says, well, I think we've got rid of the luxuries, but implicit in that is they've also got rid of the spirit. Uh, and, you know, they talk about the soul as having three things. The spirit is one of them, the spirit and the appetite. So if you take away everything that, that gives tempta temptation to the appetites, are you also taking away the spirit? And then, and then does it become this kind of dystopia of this some sort of totalitarian existence? And is that what they're really proposing? You know, again, this is just a model, and they say this is this is something that can't necessarily come to be. But in on the one hand, do you have these powerful guardians uh, that are operating under those rules, or do you have the philosopher rulers? Uh, so it's an interesting question. Yeah, but uh, remember, remember that the, these rules of uh, private property is only the the guardians, mm -hmm. and the guardians they represent the reason. Right. The reason doesn't have. Appetites or right. like appetites or spirit. The, right. the spirit is for the auxiliaries, and the appetites are for the for the workers. Right. Right. So anyway. Yeah. And and you know and again we can contrast the education of the guardians in that part that you're talking about to the education of the philosophers, which we'll talk about in our next episode. And you know again think about who's empowered to do that education. So if you're educating the guardians and you're preventing them from reading reading certain things, for example, then who's empowered to do that education? And will they fall under the influence of sophists, for example? So it's a good point. We should we should really look at what they we should really contrast the way they propose to educate the guardians versus the way they propose to educate the philosophers and do that contrast and really understand where, you know, where the better side lies. Jane, your thoughts and then Marie. I guess this is regarding education of philosophers and something that was discussed a little earlier on about burning of books. Um, 
It's it's very it's a very interesting question, and I don't think that it is as obvious as it may seem at first. So, for example, there's a book called Mein Kampf by Hitler. Um, this book obviously has a lot of things that are that are definitely that would definitely be attributed to the bad if we're talking about the platonic forms. But I have acquaintances, several acquaintances who've read this book and they were actually very scared of how convinced they became by some of the things that were written in the book. And they would actually, most of them did not finish the book because it was, um, they were starting to get convinced by the ideas which, which literally scared them and they had to put off the reading. So my question would be, would a, a book like Mein Kampf, would it deserve to be burnt or should we leave it on the shelves of libraries or I don't know, I don't know, electronic libraries so people can read it? So is that is that something that we should do or that we shouldn't do? And then I guess the argument against that would be that it contains a lot of lies, but a person who has a very weak, for example, educational background or is just doesn't have a lot of experience and they were for some reason, I don't know, not living within the general society, but they were introduced to this book and to these ideas, they may believe in them. And so this means that some myths and lies can be very, very convincing. And it's hard to tell apart those opinions and beliefs from the actual truth. And then from that, we have the question of how do we know what is falsehood? And if we're talking about the physical, the material world, we have science, we have the, the empirical method. But when we're talking about metaphysical ideas, we can't we we can't reach out to those ideas. We can't test them. And the only thing that we can do is to try to make some sort of more or less truthful assertions about the metaphysical based on what we get in the physical realm. For example, we have history and it provides us with these sort of snapshots of what certain metaphysical concepts, if they're practiced in a certain way, what sort of what sort of result in the physical world they, they give us. But in order to do that, we already need to have a very powerful background. So we're not misled into believing a lie or a myth about how that metaphysical concept was put into practice. So this, this sounds like something extremely, extremely complicated. And uh, how do we give a good understanding of knowledge to the general public? Well, to me, knowledge and wisdom is something that requires very true knowledge and wisdom, if it ever does exist, would require excruciating, I don't know, work on the on the self, not only reading books, right? You have to dig deeper than that. But how do you do that? It sounds very, very, I don't know, impractical. It's It's very hard to capture in words. And it's a sort of transcendental process, even though that could be that could be argued as being a bad approach because it, 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 you're you're going away from the empirical world that you can you can put in you can test and you can try out your ideas. But okay, I'm getting I think I'm getting overwhelmed. I'm going to finish with that. Thank you. That was that was great, Jane. And there's a lot of really interesting ideas, you know, because I actually read Mein Kampf when I was in high school, and that was just because I was studying history and you know the the you know terrible character of Hitler. Of course, was a character that you can't erase from history. It happened. It was there and we need to understand why it happened. And, you know, but maybe what you mentioned, you know, that this danger that people will start believing it, 
is really what Socrates is talking about at 492b when he says, you know, the greatest sophists of all, since they educate most completely, turning young and old men and women into precisely the kind of people they want them to be. You know, maybe in that sense, uh, you know, through his Mein Kampf, Hitler was kind of a sophist and people fall under that sway. And, and you know, maybe some very powerful people can, can be convinced that way. And you also made the, the, the point, a very important point about, you know, metaphysical ideas can't be tested the same way that in the same way that physical ideas can be tested. You know, so we can test with physics whether a certain thing will happen or not. But with the metaphysics, like what happens in the mind, it, it's not testable. So, you know, it's not susceptible to a fine and neat proof, which is, I think, why a lot of people reject philosophy and say that philosophy is useless. And so before we end, which we'll have to do in probably about a little under 10 minutes, I just wanted to raise this quote here that I've got in the notes at 488a to e. Uh, and it's this idea that, you know, some, many people will see philosophers as being useless. You know, when, when he talks at the end about, uh, uh, don't you think that the true captain will be called a real stargazer, a babbler, a good for nothing by those who sail in ships governed that way when such things happen? Um, you know, when the, when the majority of people will want the captain of the ship, you know, that this idea of navigating with, with philosophy, the majority of people will want the captain of the ship to be a warrior, to be decisive and not to look at the stars and not to look at the future and not to look through time, you know, but to just to be decisive in the moment, you know, and so that's, that's a, a theme that, you know, I guess confronts philosophy is, is whether it's useless and Socrates confronts it. So, Thank you for those ideas. And we'll go to Nuri and then JB. Wow. <laughs> it's a lot that's been said. Um, and I, yeah, could respond to Jane and to you back, to you, James. But um, my, my, yeah, we, we do have a lot of, to, to, but getting back to the text, um, I won't touch on that. When you said, James, that Socrates, uh, I think we got rid of all the luxuries and, I'm just just wondering, was that uh, kind of the birth of wanting to make people think more instead of accumulating material things? Was that kind of getting onto the birth of spirituality more, leading into, you know, religions? And because going even further into your text, when he talks about a soul and all of that stuff, um, I could see, I could see the birth of religious books. Um, you know, coding about what he talked about as soul. So I'm just putting it there to see what people thought of, of that. If that was a birth of um, going into a spiritual realm, certainly, and it's a good question. I think. Um... You know, a lot of people have written about the influence that Plato had in the development of, of religions like Christianity. Um, and certainly Socrates, the way Socrates talks about the soul as immortal um, and, you know, something unto itself, you know, it's a pure thing as opposed to something that's corrupted by the physical world, I think is, is something that's very important to understand. And that's why I want to go back and look at the Phaedo in particular, um, very important to understand. But, you know, even here in the Republic, we were seeing the soul treated, as we discussed last time, divided into three parts. And certainly the reason is the important part of the soul that that drives it in one direction or the other. Uh, and it's a question of how you, you teach that. And, and so that 
abandonment of the luxuries, that was around 399E that Socrates said that, but I think he was being a little bit cynical at that point that, uh, that the luxuries were abandoned only because they were forbidden. Um, but it, it wasn't a natural state. Uh, so they allowed the luxuries in at the beginning, and then they had to forbid them in order to get rid of them. Uh, but that isn't a natural, healthy state of a city. So I think that's something we can definitely come back to. Um, JB, well, maybe let you have the last word. Uh, well, mine is actually in response to something Jane brought up, and that was um, regarding Mein Kampf and whether or not those types of books should be burnt. And I think the the fear with that is what is the logical next step? Um, it happened to Socrates, right? The hemlock, because you burn all the books, what happens when someone orally goes around and just spreads his message? That, and whether or not that is right, I think not, but for guess for this model society that they're building, I'm, I'm not sure what they would say. Interesting question. Yeah. And especially, you know, to consider that question uh, in the modern technological era here where we've got the internet and you can't burn the internet. You can block it and certain countries do block it on certain occasions, uh, but you can't stop it. And so we've got this, this existence now where even if something is written down, you, yes, you can burn the books, but it still comes out on the internet. And, and so technology has really put us in a position where we can't stop, even if we wanted to, the, the false things from getting out there. And in fact, it, it goes faster and faster. You know, I, somebody said some years ago that uh, in the internet, the uh, a lie will get a, its way around the world three times before the truth even has a, a chance to get out of the gate. And I think we see that sometimes. Um, so, you know, all the more perhaps reason why we need to really understand the philosophic nature and how we discern the difference between truth and falsehood. Uh, it's a very important point and, and something that is, I think, perhaps even more important now than ever before uh, is to understand that point. And so, you know, philosophy might be seen by some people as being useless, but maybe we're at the point of time in technology that philosophy is particularly useful. And so maybe with that rather hopeful thought, uh, we can kind of conclude today's episode. Um, and again, I just wanted to thank everybody for being here and some just absolutely great discussion. I mean, so many great ideas have been jotting them down as uh, as people have been speaking and there's certainly some really good ideas to tie together here um so thank you again for participating we'll invite anybody who wants to stay online after we stop the recording to uh just hang out for half an hour in plato's cafe afterwards um and then just to remind everybody that next uh in two weeks time we'll be doing we'll be covering 521a to 541a which will bring us to the end of book seven. Uh, and this is where they focus on the type of knowledge that a philosopher should hold. And so that's what we'll focus on next time. And until then, I want to wish everybody um, a, a good two weeks and uh, look forward to uh, staying online with those who want to for Plato's Cafe. So thank you again, and uh, we'll see you all hopefully in two weeks. Thanks. Bye.